0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Krupp.
1: And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment.
0: As we enter the thick of fall festival season, it seems that every week brings with it a full slate of amazing new films from all over the world. This week, we rang up two of our favorite critics, Adam Nayman and Jose Teodoro, for a look at the 2021 edition of the Toronto International Film Festival, which just wrapped this past weekend.
1: Jose and Adam had much to report on from their hometown fest. We kick things off with a discussion of some of the bigger movies on offer, including Dune, Spencer, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, and Terence Davies's Benediction, before diving into films like Silent Land, Sundown, Bergman Island, and more.
0: We hope you enjoy the conversation. And don't miss Jose's dispatch from TIFF in this week's Film Comment letter. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome today to the Film Comment podcast. We have two incredible guests, both Canadian correspondents, reporting live from the frozen tundra, although it's probably still pretty fall-like there, I imagine. We have um, Adam, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, my name's Adam Neiman, Uh direct from... The, the Tundra, as as, as said, of, of Toronto. Uh, I write film for The Ringer, and I'm contributing editor to, to Cinemascope, which is a Canadian film publication. And Jose? My name is Jose Teodoro, and
3: I'm also based here on The Tundra of Toronto. I just finished hanging uh, my wet laundry out in the Arctic sun.
0: <laughs> I imagine it's sort of like all reindeer skins and that sort of thing. <laughs>
3: exactly that's what you need to to keep it real uh, north of the border yeah um but yeah i'm a, a freelance film critic and uh, frequent contributor to film comment and occasional contributor to cinemascope and a bunch of other uh film publications
0: and jose has uh has written an excellent dispatch a kind of wrap. um of the Toronto Film Festival, this year's edition, for film comment that will be in our letter this Thursday, this coming Thursday. So thank you, Jose, for that. And listeners, please keep your eyes on your inbox for more from Jose. Thank you guys both for joining again. And then, of course, we have Devika joining us.
1: Hello, I am joining from the tropics of New York.
0: Sweltering subtropical (laughs) climate.
1: Clint and I have been following the Toronto Film Festival virtually this year. I was so bummed to not be able to go, but, you know, it's how it's how things panned out. There was not a lot of the more high-profile stuff on the digital platform, though we did manage to catch a few things here and there in local screenings. And, of course, there's crossover with the New York Film Festival. But I'm curious, maybe we'll start with the film that I think a lot of people were really buzzing about, Dune. Did either of you watch that? And if so, tell me what the big screen is like.
3: Did you, did you see Dune or you didn't see Dune? My, my life is still dune
2: okay. no, I
0: think Adam might be the only dune, dune watcher.
2: Yeah, I wrote about Dune for The Ringer, which will probably be one of a bunch of pieces on that film on that particular site, because it's a, you know, broad populist appeal kind of, kind of movie. And there's lots of stuff about the history of the production and the previous history of trying to adapt this novel, and even just all the dune sort of ephemera and arcana that is probably going to be dominating our cultural conversation, you know, this fall. But what I choose to to write about, what I chose to write about was, in a strange way, this is an unbelievably fraught Fragile viewing experience because the movie just ends right I actually got in some flack and I got a bunch of people on Twitter being like, how could you say the movie ends i'm like well you know they, 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 they all end, but it, it, it doesn't end in a way that is self contained it, it ends in a very kind of you know tune in next week on Dune except next week on Dune has not been greenlit technically. And I find the production circumstances really fascinating because the model for a movie like this, for this big canvas connective storytelling, I mean, this is sort of trying to do like a Lord of the Rings type thing, but they had total buy-in on Lord of the Rings from the beginning to shoot them all consecutively so that there was a continuity, even just simple stuff of like, you know, haircuts and things. I mean, mm. <laughs> right, right. They, 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 they had everybody. And all these franchises to, to an extent have people and Dune does not this is not an underdog movie. It's made for $165 million, I think, and, you know, enlists a small army to to get it made. And it is somewhat impersonal and, you know, militaristic in that sense, not just in that it's about fighting and action, but it's obviously a military operation of a movie. But there's no guarantee that there's a second one, which for the moment, and probably only for the moment, renders this this weirdly fragile, chancy kind of blockbuster, because it is intellectual property, but it's not Sure thing. Stuff like the, like Marvel basically threatens us. So like in 2027 on a Tuesday, you're going to be at one of our movies. Right. That's what their annual shareholder conference is like. I think
0: you you're you have to be there, but I think we can probably safely skip it. You no, know, no,
2: it's actually becoming increasingly mandatory. It's like vaccine passports. You That's must a Canadian watch. thing. You yeah. must watch. <laughs>
0: Individual liberty still reigns here, south of the border. Some
2: Marvel piece of uh, absolute garbage, you know, in 2026. Like, they're set. And Dune is not set. It's fascinating.
0: Do you know what benchmarks this first segment has to achieve in order to...
2: Well, you know, in my capacity as an executive with the studio. No, I mean, I, I don't... Have you
0: reported on this or anything?
2: <laughs> no, but, but, no, but people are starting to talk about that. And I did see a headline on Twitter with my, my Dune Google alert that I think it is more going to be our HBO Max subscribers watching it because the studio understands that this is not going to make a hat like when Tenet came out last year it was like this needs to make half a billion dollars theatrically to to recoup and Villeneuve in the same way that he's a kind of Christopher Nolan light filmmaker like that's the career arc. He's doing a very Christopher Nolan, y, you know, last Guardian of the cinephile flame act, you know, he's traveling to Venice and to toronto to present this film to people he said you know since the dawn of time we all need to watch movies together in a a movie theater but i think it's going to be more are people going to watch this on the streaming service in a big enough volume i mean if i had to bet there will be a part two this isn't like you know like you know dnievel will eat again no matter what happens (laughs) But it just might have a, a
0: much lower budget. That's what I'm hoping for. Could
2: could have An a much extremely lower
0: budget. low budget second half. With the- and I
2: just want to know if these actors are going to look the same in a year. Right. What if what if someone falls off the wagon? What if someone decides to hit the gym it's you know but the but the movie at long last i will say perfectly fine i have perfectly good time
1: okay yeah i was gonna say adam good or bad dune good or dune bad
2: but when a movie costs that much money we all know it doesn't matter
1: right right Right.
2: it only i guess matters if it's somehow really good which is the argument for lord of the rings or really bad which is the argument for take your pick this is somewhere in between lord of the rings and everything else but it's, it's fine
0: Dune is such like a archetypal story. It's a, I just feel like you know what it is. You know if you put enough money on on the screen, it's gonna yeah. what kind of you're, it's gonna be fun.
2: Villeneuve was very good in interviews about about talking about the Lynch version and the unmade Yodorowski version and trying to say like I'm on all these movies side. You know I I like aspects of all of them and I'm trying to do my own thing. And again he, he his press release he's trying to do this Scorsese thing now where he's like you know and now Marvel's bad. I mean this is all interesting calculated marketing. I think. Mm. To try, oh, really to try and frame Dune as something that'll other. save
1: cinema or yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, why not? Sure. You can put that on the poster. Dune Dune may save something. But I but I I I got a good time watching it.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, it seems fun.
1: I was just gonna say, Jose, I know you didn't see Dune, but is there anything you saw that'll save cinema? <laughs>
3: My God, that will save <laughs> cinema. No, I don't think anything at this point in time is, is going to, to save cinema per se, but there are glimmers. You know, I wound up seeing a lot of debut features from new directors, and I was encouraged by the sense that a lot of new filmmakers, even working with reasonably sized budgets, don't seem to be especially concerned with making calling card films anymore. You know, I feel like a lot of people are making films that... Perhaps it's because these filmmakers are, have resigned themselves to having their films only shown on a film festival circuit, or maybe it's because they've, you know, secured the sort of funding that uh, is not contingent on them having any kind of significant box office success. But I saw a lot of first features from people that just weren't playing by the sort of rules that they should be playing by, given the genre they're working in.
1: And any in particular you want to shout out?
3: I was a fan of uh, Silent Land, which was a film in the platform competition. And I'm going to try not to butcher the director's name. Her her name is Agnieszka Wojcniczka, I believe is her name. She's a Polish filmmaker. but This is a film that's actually set in Italy, uh, in Sardinia. It's, a, I think, a pretty interesting film uh, about a very affluent Polish couple that finds themselves uh, vacationing in this very opulent home that's overlooking the sea, and it has a swimming pool. There's an issue with a swimming pool when they move in and the swimming pool is getting fixed by a Arab migrant worker. An accident occurs, a very unfortunate accident occurs and we spend the rest of the film revisiting the moral consequences of witnessing that accident and what one is supposed to do about that accident. So, you know, the film definitely has a certain resonance with a film like Force Majeure. As I mentioned in the, in the dispatch that's on the way, it's a film that also reminded me a lot of the store so much water. So Close to Home, which was incorporated into uh, Altman Shortcuts, and it's also it uh, was also adapted into the film Gendabine. But it's a, it's a film that, it's interesting, it, it sort of has enough breath in it that it can afford to make a few mistakes. As it moves toward the end, it has a long scene of dialogue where people start talking about the themes a little too much, but then it kind of has a final switchback that is completely free of dialogue that kind of beautifully encapsulates the sense of people being haunted by their mistakes, even as they feel remorse, even as they start to question their privilege.
2: Did anyone see it? Adam, did you see it? No, I was told by a, a, trusted, uh, a trusted colleague that it had a, you mentioned um, Ruben Ausland, he mentioned that it felt a bit Hanukkahish as well, i mean i I see you wincing because you probably like the movie too much to say it reminded you of hanukkah but the couple people i saw coming out of it said that it was very said that it was very accomplished and it was available for digital streaming which is an interesting procedural thing where you have this embarrassment of riches it's not the 12 big ticket titles that are digital streaming it's not dune it's not spencer it's everything else but the windows were so short And this isn't to bore an audience. I think an audience might find it interesting to hear this, that in the same way that festivals only can schedule press screenings, they, TIFF tried to sort of say, well, these are going to be available for 24, 48 hours. But I think a lot of people just kind of forgot. It's Mm -hmm. very, it's easy to show up for a press screening on time. It's sometimes hard to be like, I will be home for these 90 minutes during a block that something's available. And so while I had silent land flagged, the window just kind of passed me by.
0: It happened to me too. Many things were just, because you have to make choices too. There's, You know, a bunch of movies are available during this window. You kind of have to pick and choose and and, uh, use your time wisely.
1: Let's talk about Spencer.
0: Spencer it is. Let's talk about Spencer.
2: A.K.A. the worst person in the world, also known as...
1: And Benediction? I don't know. There's a lot of titles could could sort of right. be stuffed into Spencer. I feel like there's been a lot of wildly differing reactions to the film. When it premiered at Venice, I was seeing all these raves. I'm seeing more ambivalence now. I'd love to hear what you guys thought about it before I say my piece. I was not pleased. But I'm curious you know, I would like to be persuaded otherwise if either of you really liked it.
3: It's funny because I, I, I feel like virtually every film critic whose work I find at all compelling or, you know, worthy of respect really dislikes Pablo Flarain's work in general. So uh, I'd like to hear what Adam thought.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I published on Spencer today in both in terms of the way Ringer framed the headline and the way that I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess I should say the other way around, maybe the way that I wrote it and then the way the headline came out. Not as punitive as one, as I might've expected, given how much I, I also don't like the films of Pablo Larraín, especially not Wait, Jackie. what does the
1: headline, Adam, tell us?
2: Something along the lines of, Spencer was a good movie that was at TIFF. And I'm like, did I say that? <laughs> um, I, 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 I think that Jackie is a film of devices and tactics and techniques that's a shell game. There's nothing in Jackie. There's all of this mediation and all of these devices and all of these strategies to kind of shell game around the fact that it's kind of got nothing. And it's not a writer's film. This is a writer's film. And unfortunately for some, the writer is Stephen Knight, who's a wildly uneven screenwriter. And there are times where I go where Stephen Knight goes. I am a super fan along with Criterion's Ash Clark of the film Locke which some people find to be uh, overwritten nonsense and I think is very good and I love Tom Hardy's performance in it and I think Stephen Knight likes metaphors he also likes meta fives you know he's a <laughs> he, he, he overwrites a lot and this movie also like Jackie is filled with Spencer is filled with metaphors and devices and motifs but some of them I think connect and and some of them some of them work the two houses you know one that she occupies versus the one that she wants to go home to her Diana feeling herself and having a kinship with sort of the historical Anne Boleyn but I also felt that a lot in this movie was was borrowed and I I'm I'm a little biased because I like this filmmaker very much to the point of writing a book about him but uh, he clearly just saw a phantom thread right the Johnny Greenwood score the servants moving in formation through stairs and through the kitchens, even the Anne Boleyn ghost in Spencer is exactly framed like a uh, uh, day Lewis's mother in, in Phantom Thread. Wow. So,
1: I didn't even I, make that connection, I, I th- but now that you yeah. mention it.
2: I mean, like a lot of people saw Phantom Thread, it's just Pablo Lorraine's the, the one who gets to go make a, a movie stealing from it. And, uh, but I think really, and this is, you know, you guys tell me what you think, but it, It rises or falls or succeeds or fails on how Kristen Stewart's famous alienation from her own celebrity can animate Princess Diana's same, right? That, that Kristen Stewart is one of the actors who is not, we don't see her as a tragic figure, but we certainly see her as someone who is private and retiring and yet tantalizing and enigmatic for those reasons. We want to know about her as much as we want to look at her. I very much like looking at Kristen Stewart, and I don't care who knows it. I think she's an incredibly magnetic, mesmerizing kind of movie star. So she's well cast in that sense. And I thought that she was much less mannered and annoying than... Portman was playing Jackie I thought that this was a much more successful to be looked at and contemplated kind of movie star performance I also think that some of the dialogue in this movie is so bad that I will you know be taking it to my grave right <laughs> and I think that some of those metaphors or metaphives that Stephen Knight likes are 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 really annoying so it's a it's a it's a mixed bag for me but i mean jackie was a movie i just wanted to get out of i just wanted to get out of it i saw it with someone who walked out of it because she couldn't take it and this was not that bad for me
0: that's a that's a high praise
2: (laughs) oh you asked (laughs) i i
3: i i i feel as as though i mean i i guess i just want to quickly mention something about uh la and his uh, my feeling is that he's a he's a director who You know, I think the ideal is that each new project that he approached, he wants to find some formal gambit that feels very unique to that project. So, you know, his first three features, you see his style differ wildly from my first four features. You know, his style will differ wildly from feature to feature. And then with Jackie and Emma, he was really on this kick where even though he's using like a very, very wide aspect ratio, every time there's a shot reverse shot, you know, the actor's head is like right in the center of the screen, which gives you this very disorienting uh, sense of of space. I think the thing about Spencer is that Larain, I think here is, you know, more or less neutralized that kind of desire to really adopt some new formal gambit, which leaves more room for the script to do what it does, you know, successfully or failingly. But to me, the interesting thing actually about Kristen Stewart's performance is that, you know, this is the kind of role that's normally taken on by a certain kind of heavyweight actor who we expect to balance you know both some sort of psychological and emotional acuity with uh imitation right mm-hmm. but in her case i feel like she was really not especially concerned with being uh, mimetic of uh, princess diana and so what you got instead is a sort of inside out performance where I feel like really early uh, Kristen Stewart performances for me were always distracting because she was so fidgety. I felt like you're watching an actor who is inherently interesting on camera, but has like very little control over her instrument. Uh, and then for me, I think probably like for a lot of people that was seeing her in the SAS films that made me start to see how, you know, with age and maturity and also with the right director or perhaps also the right co-stars, think of her working with, with Juliette Binoche, you see an actor who gradually is uh, finding a way to take that nervous energy and turn it into something that really translates as strong choices. And I think what she did with Princess Di uh, is kind of fascinating because instead of watching the performance and looking for anything that feels like, um, you know, like it represents, you know, Princess Die's kind of presence in the media, we're seeing someone take on the performance in in a way that she just wants to capture, you know, this kind of peak of anxiety that's, that's within her and mold it into uh, something that more or less aligns with the narrative. Though I will say it is one of those screenplays where you kind of feel like, you know, no stone was left unturned with regards to turning this one moment in a real person's life into a pressure cooker where like everything's going to change from this moment. And the ending feels pretty overwrought in its kind of celebration of her fleeing, you know, the royal family's Christmas holiday.
0: So it's also a cliffhanger. We're waiting for the for the funding
3: <laughs> on part two to
1: come through what on happens this one too. Next. Yeah,
3: what happens next. It just ends. Yeah.
1: I'm so fascinated by both of your responses. I have to admit, I know that a lot of people think that Kristen Stewart has like a some unique performance style that is I don't know, special. I think she is, as Adam said, magnetic to look at. She's just amazing to look at. I mean, not just because she's a beautiful person. I think she is magnetic. And the success of her performances really depends on a director being able to use that kind of affectless, magnetism that she has. That's why she's so good in personal shopper. You know, this kind of alienated grief and inability in the search for communication. I felt she was so miscast in this with Jackie and this film. Lorraine is doing that thing of taking a very recognizable star and kind of like putting them into a the role of another very recognizable person. And that kind of disconnect, I guess, is part of his ploy. But for me it it was just so hard to buy her at any moment as anyone other than Kristen Stewart on screen. And Diana is, again, someone who, from what I have seen of her media, you know, appearances and just, like, her place in culture was a very specific kind of person with specific affectations and her, you know, the way her uh, kind of public persona and behavior changed over the years. And I think Kristen Stewart does, like, a really tremendous attempt at trying to kind of meld those mannerisms and affectations with, you know, her own personality. But everything felt so mannered to me because I don't think Kristen Stewart is like a chameleon. Like, I don't think she's the kind of actress who can become other people. So you have to kind of use what's in her. And here it just feels like she is fundamentally kind of affectless. She's fundamentally an impassive sort of presence. And Diana's, especially in that period of her life, she's supposed to be very emotional, very mercurial and erratic and sensitive. And those two things just didn't come together for me. I mean, it just felt really forced, all of, you know, all of her responses to the various things that happened in that three-day weekend. And, you know, I I have to say, I think I liked it even less than the last few R.A.N. films, which I was not a fan of because there is something bigger in those films. Like, it is not such a closed world. Even with Jackie, there's a historical event that Jackie is framed against. This is completely closed into the the Sandringham Palace, this three-day weekend, and even more inward. Like, it's really just about what Diana is going through. The other people in the royal family appear on screen really briefly. You know, you only see glimpses of them. This is just Diana. And, you know, I think Diana's story is really moving and captivating. But at the end of the day, you know, it is moving and captivating because she was, or she seemed like a really sad and troubled woman trapped in a really sad marriage and surrounded by, you know, um, people who she didn't get along with. And what I really could not stand in this film is the attempt to spin that into some grand transhistorical, like, feminist-ish tale. So, you know, a major conceit of the movie for people who might not have seen it is the parallels between Diana and Anne Boleyn, right? And she's like reading this book about Anne Boleyn, who was, uh, you know, beheaded for supposed adultery, you know. And so that's kind of a theme, Prince Charles's own affairs and his suspicions of Diana's. And I won't give it away, but, you know, you guys know the Meta 5 moments I'm talking about, you know, pearl clutching, or should I say pearl shredding, moments where those stories are brought you know together to kind of place diana in this
2: i I believe when the bird in a cage diana emerges into the middle of a pheasant (laughs) shoot is where i hope stephen knight high-fived himself yeah
1: that's the thing all these metaphors
2: but what you're saying about the the trans-historical narrative i mean that's where in a way the Stewart performance, and this isn't about it working or failing, because I think you're right, and I think both of you are right, that there's not much of a mimetic relationship between Kristen Stewart and and Princess Diana. It's more that Stewart is this kind of avatar of the contemporary, and Knight's idea, whether it's a good one or not, or whether it's an effective one or not, I think has to do with Diana's, not just her contemporaneity, but her kind of avowedly middle-class, not upbringing, because even though the house she wants to go back to is kind of empty and falling apart, it's also a big country estate. She's not a lower-class person. But but, <laughs> but it has to do with her, her middle-class taste and her rejection of the trappings of death, right? So I like the bit where she's talking to someone and she's like, I can't help but I like Phantom of the Opera. I like Les Mis. Les I Mis. like fast food.
1: And she says, I like middle-class things. Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, fast food. I mean... My eyes rolled outside of my skull. But I,
2: w- whether whether it's, like, like I say, whether it works or not, that's the thesis to which Stewart's casting makes sense. Because even though she is becoming a kind of entrenched prestige season actress, she has an inherently, if not anti-establishment, she has an inherently kind of millennial vibe to her and this may be night mixing different kinds of newness and different kinds of youth but if you're going to make a movie about a character who feels hemmed in and overpowered and sort of just frustrated with you know stifling routine and tradition and the order of things stewart is a good actor to cast in that in that sense whatever extra textual association she has kind of serve that idea but there's so many ways from Spencer we could go out towards other movies at TIFF. I mean, I felt like it paired interestingly as a story of a woman marrying into a situation. You could compare it to Power of the Dog as a mm. movie about fetishizing the British past. You could compare it to to, 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 to Last Night in Soho. I mean, it was, and, and with Power of the Dog, which maybe we've all seen, I don't I don't know if I was being fair when I said Lorraine was stealing from Phantom Thread, but Greenwood is an auteur of both of the movies he scored at this festival too. Mm -hmm. And Power of the Dog carries so many associations from his music, that sort of atonal, stringy, buzzy music melded to the Western imagery. I think Jane Campion is an exponentially greater artist than Pablo Lorraine, but it still ends up feeling a bit like there will be blood. And I'm not trying to close off or reduce Power of the Dog to that, but Greenwood is a big factor in both of these films. I think his score is wasted on Spencer, and I think it it, it helps Power of the Dog very much.
1: Yeah, I walked out of Power of the Dog, and my first thought was that was an amazing score. I mean, that yeah. was a f- oh. like the mm. thing that left the most indelible impression on me in the movie. And I didn't realize it was Johnny Greenwood until the credits rolled. So it was this thought was in my head even before. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast.
2: I mean the consensus seems to be that everyone everyone seems to think power of the Dog's very strong. She won best director at Venice. I think campion is ripe for reappreciation. I've noticed in my my Twitter feed in the last few months lots of people rewatching in the cut
0: in the cut which is, a is very absolutely you now you know movie.
2: like just kind of maligned enough but with enough personality and sort of horniness that it, it's a good it's a good movie to bat around
1: cult yeah yeah Definitely.
2: and uh this I think is um. This is in the vein and to some extent of the piano in that when she's really good, she can make repression and enigma and frustration into a source of pleasure where the fact that the movie is just refusing for so long to give up the goods, right? Like what is the configuration of this relationship? When is the other shoe going to drop?
1: Let's, let's give people a little preview of the, yeah. of the film before we jump into the themes.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's about two brothers who are ranchers who have been quite successful and one is kind of middle-aged and and feeble, the Jesse Plemons The uh, great characters.
1: Jesse Plemons.
2: Great Jesse Plemons. And his brother is really potent and also very contemptuous of everything, including his brother. This is-
0: Plum Plemons, I think they call that.
2: <laughs> when life gives you Plemons, uh, <laughs> his brother is more this contemptuous, very physical, dirty guy, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, which should be the kiss of death. Because he is the kiss of death for me in most movies, Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, it, <laughs> he's good in this. He's
1: he's macho in this. It's he's supposed macho. to be macho in this. Wow. Yes. He, cri- really? he, he,
2: he cries macho. Yeah. He cries yeah. macho. Yeah. Uh, he cries macho. And then their relationship is upended when Plemons, for reasons that are successfully to me, barely elucidated in the film, whether they are convenience or loneliness or desperation or given the amount of repressed homosexuality in this movie. Some variation of that. Uh, he takes a wife who is this kind of sad, obviously wilted, roadhouse proprietress played by uh, Kirsten uh, Kirsten Dunst, not Kirsten Stewart.
1: She's a widow, a widow, yeah, with a son.
2: A widow under tragic circumstances with a son who is deceptively as fragile as her, and who this is what I meant by you wait for the movie to play its hand because she's got this son who the Benedict Cumberbatch character is just mercilessly verbally bullying for his perceived kind of effeminate qualities and then the son disappears. And then not only does the son come back, but it's kind of his movie, you know, the, the way it moves the narrative pieces around is interesting. But I mean, I guess the main tension is this marriage is not making these brothers happy, but why, why is Benedict Cumberbatch's character so hateful of Kristen Dunst and also so mean to her son why is she so frustrated? You know, I mean, is it sexual jealousy? Does he just hate her? Does he think that she's a phony? Is he, does he think she's trying to take the money? And I don't know if it worked this way for you, Devika, but it's also a very asymmetrically paced film where it moseys beautifully, but kind of bafflingly for a long time. And then it snaps into place narratively almost as a kind of thriller. And you could feel the audience when I saw it, because I saw it on public screen and you could feel the audience kind of sitting up and being like, oh, this is what you've built. Oh, this architecture is really kind of tight, actually. And uh, I I found myself pretty impressed by that.
1: Yeah, I think all that is really on point for me as well. So this is an adaptation of a a 1967 novel by Thomas Savage of the same name. And I really now want to read the novel I hadn't read it before watching the film. And the film kind of unfolds in chapters that are marked by title cards, which I thought was a bit of a baffling choice. it Uh, It just says like chapter one, chapter two. And I think this is a film that is gorgeous in moments. Like the staging of specific scenes really took my breath away sometimes. The way Benedict Cumberbatch is used was utterly surprising. It's a very, it's a film that's really invested in like mood and and sensory experience since it's about repressed sexuality so much and really how those things play out against this you know, like beautiful Western vista. The ways in which it is taciturn and like kind of holding its cards close to it, its chest is... Like letting Benedict Cumberbatch and then also Cody Smith McPhee, who plays Kirsten Dunst's son, they are both these like a, the the main exemplars of masculinity in this film, and sort of different examples. With uh, uh, the son having this effeminate demeanor, but also being this like kind of brilliant and ruthless doctor. Like he's studying he's studying medicine. And then Benedict Cumberbatch, like, clearly compensating for stuff, you know, with his overdone masculinity and lack of regard for grooming and all of that. And I, because I hadn't read the novel, I, like, really didn't, I mean, I, for a long time, I was like, is he gay? Is he not gay? Like, is this the twist? And the fact that the movie is able to make it so ambiguous, I thought was really powerful. I mean, there are scenes when Benedict Cumberbatch is bathing or, you know, playing with a scarf and just kind of allowing himself to be in touch with his physicality just momentarily, but you can see, like, not too far. Like, he fears some kind of slippery slope. Same with his relationship with the sun, who turns out to be way wilier than you expect, and how the sun also uses his presence to to kind of set his ploy in motion. I mean, it's just the way it's filmed, the music, the way it's framed. And also there are some scenes with Kirsten Dunst who is just, you know, who slowly sinks into alcoholism because of just being ill-treated in in this new marital home and being like basically abused verbally and, and, you know, tormented by, by Benedict Cumberbatch's character. And so there was these beautiful moments where these emotions and repressed feelings are brought so powerfully to the surface and so I loved these segments, but I have to say structurally the film like Adam was saying is strangely inconsistent and that's why I kind of want to read the novel because I feel like there are some ellipses that not knowing the story like make it kind of confusing and like the plot really kind of jumps from a kind of slow burn to something more yeah, something more plotty and thriller like and I wasn't sure if the build-up really worked for me. Like, that's the one aspect of the film that I'm ambivalent about. Like, the way it builds up to the last um, sequences felt sort of off. I just, just to register that I'm not like, this was the greatest movie I've seen this year, which I feel like a lot of people are going to feel very strongly about this movie. And I would just like to register that I do have a reservation, but... Otherwise, I was quite taken with it.
0: So it's like top 20 for you then?
1: (laughs) We'll see when we get to... I mean, there's so many, you know, I mean, I just absolutely loved Benediction. I think I'm the only one who saw it. Yeah, and we did... I just interviewed Terrence uh, for the podcast. So we don't need to get Mm -hmm. into that. But like beautiful movie about queerness, unrepressed queerness and sexuality. I mean, that just... The way d- depicts the relation between, relations between Sassoon and various famous Englishmen in that post-World War II period, just full of humor and joy, even when it's conducted in the shadows.
0: Well, and it's just interesting in the interview you did with him, he says that people were very much openly gay, especially in the upper classes in England at the time, because they were protected by their class. And I think that's kind of a, that was an interesting point in, in your guys' conversation.
3: It was an interesting point and I would just like to say I I know that that you all have um have you know also you have the interview in in print but I would I would definitely advise people who didn't listen to it, to go back to listen to your interview with Terence Davies because it's a a lovely conversation and he's um I, I, I I'm always struck by what a kind of charming articulate but also really humble uh artist he is yeah It was a pleasure to listen to.
1: Incredibly witty. I mean, I was just laughing the whole time and has all these references up his sleeve, which do come through in the movie, but not like in your face. And, you know, we're talking about Spencer. I think this is not to like compare them in any glib way, but Benediction is a great example of a movie that's really about one person's sort of mercurial life, their descent into despair and bitterness. That feels even though it's so much like it has a narrow vision in a certain way, it's about Sassoon, it's about his milieu, that also has a kind of expansiveness, you know, that has a sense of the larger world, and a kind of the universality of certain aspects of this person's life that I was just very taken with.
0: Another film that I know we wanted to talk about was Bergman Island. I just saw that last night actually
2: certainly certainly it's the better of the two tim roth on vacation movies oh you also
0: saw sundown (laughs) which i i've 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 seen it as well
1: oh i i want to hear about sundown from both of you
2: me too yeah i'd like to do you do you really want to hear about sundown (laughs) i uh i wrote about uh, michelle franco's last film new order for cinemascope was horrified the other day on twitter to find that someone was like Everyone seems to hate Michelle Franco, but but Adam Neyman thought New Order was pretty good in scope. Like, that's not what I wrote. I mean it, it, it's a horrible movie to me. Or... I
1: have read that review, Adam, and I couldn't tell if you didn't liked it or not. So I will say.
2: I think I think <laughs> implying that the film is uh, you know, deeply, deeply ugly in its in its, in its its class politics and represent, I mean, you know, it's well-made, but who cares? I mean, he's working with talented people and he's been making movies for a long time. I mean, Sundown is an interesting case. And I actually, I, I'm dying to hear what Jose, I like what Jose says about everything, but the way this movie sh- is shaped dramatically and as a character study, I would love to hear what Jose has to say as so well. I'll ask him, he, he can do the heavier lifting. But for me, I thought in this film by a filmmaker, I do not like For the Record, do not like New Order, do not like Sundown. He is so up against the edge of an interesting subject, which is not wealth inequality, which I think he stages in the crudest and most obvious way, and which is not even the idea of white privilege on vacation, which again, I think he stages in a way that's counterintuitive in both of these films. He's like, uh, I want to criticize wealthy people, but I will also only focus on them and everyone else kind of you know is seen vaguely and threateningly and in a in an unformed way but i thought that what roth's performance which i the the word i kept thinking of is it's like a boneless performance it's it's a weirdly boneless performance he can't really like stand up or, or or sit up straight part of it is alcoholism but it's also like it's funny
1: we love your metaphives adam yeah. i just want to sing. Here's the here,
2: here's the here's the interesting version of sundown the interesting version of sundown is what does someone who is so wealthy that they don't want anything, like what does their desire look like? And what are they trying to convince themselves desire and comfort and happiness and escape looks like, but because it's this filmmaker, who's a Michelle gotcha Franco, there is a twist lying in plain sight for this movie, which is atrocious and which I think undermines and, De de intensifies whatever whatever drama might be latent in mm. this setup. I cannot think of a movie I saw at the festival except maybe Dashcam that has a worse last fifteen minutes than Sundown does, which you also wanted to talk about, but we can get not to that really. Um, but better to talk about Sundown. And I, I just think that uh, I think it's a really awful back half of that movie because the setup by his standards, or really by kind of any festival movie standards, kind of okay. And then I, I, I think it's really stupid. I don't know what, what you thought is I.
3: I mean I, I think you you're putting it quite well the thing the thing about about Michel Franco is that you would kind of think that he's from a culture very different than the one he inhabits. I mean, it's funny the I, I won't give too much away. Let me just say first of all that I do think that the setup, the premise of sundown is actually extremely intriguing. and I think that Michel Franco a bit like Hanukkah, to go back to Hanukkah, is... Who yeah. he wishes, by the way. He wishes. Yes, but, but yeah. like Hanukkah, I think what he's really gifted at is in the first half of the film, r- managing ambiguities beautifully. You know, it's, this is not a big spoiler, but I'll just say, for the first 20 minutes of the film, I had no idea what the relationship was between the two central characters, between oh, Charlotte work totally. and yeah. Tim Roth. I didn't know if they were married. I didn't know if they were separated. I didn't know... It's not a big deal. They're siblings, right? That's, (laughs) it's not a big deal to reveal that. But I think, but I was intrigued by that ambiguity, is what I want to give him props for, is at the beginning of the film, everything that I didn't understand, he made me want to, uh, you know, slowly find out what was going on. But as the film goes along, and as we're dealing with these questions of... uh, Inheritance and such, uh, this, bigger, this larger question for Tim Roth's character about what does a ridiculously wealthy person who's in late middle age want to do with his life if he doesn't want money? That's intriguing. And that takes us really up until the halfway point of the film where this family is on vacation in Mexico. And then I think for me, the real turning point is actually in a moment that echoes uh, Denis Villeneuve's film. Which I know Adam does not like very much, but there's a moment in in Sicario where yeah. you see a brutal slaughter taking place on a highway in Mexico, and we see something similar. I won't say anything else about it, but we see something similar at a key turning point in Sundown, and it, it, it's pretty reprehensible. But you know, to use such a uh, such a fraught milieu, you know, uh, to kind of use that as a very crude plot point. You know, to use that thread of violence and to focus that thread of violence against the people who, you know, have least reason to be concerned about it. You know, vacationers. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's pretty awful. He, he's a very deterministic filmmaker, I think, is ultimately his problem. And and the whole setup, as interesting as it is, eventually you're like, oh, I see where this is going. It's this going to go to the worst possible places after some point in time? And maybe that's a little bit like Hanukkah as well.
2: Well, you know, it's funny, I, I mean, because I and I have known each other long enough to remember the days when, when Hanukkah movies and festivals were like the, the hot ticket, right? And then after a while, without losing any of his skill, because I think Michael Hanukkah is a supremely skilled filmmaker, his own body of work catches up to and overpowers him where you're like, yeah, he manages ambiguities very well, but by the end, we know what's going to happen. There's going to be some form of violence. There's going to be some form of tragedy. It's beyond latent. It's just predictable. I think Franco works at a lower level of skill and I think a lower level of principle than, than Hanukkah, but he can't even do the violent shock turns the way that, that Hanukkah does. And it's true. A, a, he, he, just kind of can't do it. And in this film as well, he, he does something that, 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 you know, that, that Hanukkah would, would, would never do, which is he, <laughs> you know, he, he, he gives the most obvious prosaic, banal explanation in, in the end, Hanukkah at least when he's good, withholds the explanation. Even if the provocation feels a bit forced, I mean Franco just as a dramatist in this movie, as a dramatist, he 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 fails. And um, yeah, I think what Jose was saying about managing ambiguity is 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 great. But you know, the balls to keep them in the air; they have to land. And when they land in this movie, I think it's just thuds all all around. Really, like really. Th- Big big thuds.
0: Take take it easy on the poor guy, Adam. (laughs) Why? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. By all means.
1: But I would love to hear Adam and Clint tell us about the other Tim Roth movie,
0: Bergman Island. I just saw it last night. It's still kind of it, it was incredibly beautiful and. Uh, well lit film, but Tim Roth is.
1: <laughs> that's usually that's, something you say pejoratively.
0: So. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I was totally I'm not sure. I totally loved Bergman Island. I, I also mm. feel that it was a very, a very well made, and extremely beautiful and pleasant, and enjoyable construction. And I'm not sure. I think it was totally successful at um, conveying any insights into. lives of its characters at least i found the most moving moment to be the final scene in which a character who has not appeared the entire movie suddenly appears and and to me that that kind of i was like well this is what the movie is about actually but it's been avoiding this subject the subject of motherhood
1: well what is the movie about tell us a, a little bit
0: the movie is about a very successful filmmaker played by tim roth and his partner played by Vicky Creeps. She's also a filmmaker, maybe slightly less successful, but also, you know, touring the the festival circuit. And they are doing a residency on at uh f- Faroe Island. I think it's pronounced Foda, which is Foda, yeah, Foda. Yeah,
3: it's like totally counterintuitive, but Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I remember I remember trying to catch it during the movie and 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 also we'd had f- uh, faro salad earlier. So it was, it was tough for me a lot going on. And they're doing a residency at Fora, on Fora Island, which is the home of Ingmar Bergman and where he made many of his greatest films, or many of his great films. Tim Ross's character is doing is doing a screening of his film at the at the local movie house and is presenting it. and he's And he's coming along with his screenplay very nicely. Everything seems to be going well. and And Vicky Crepes' character is sort of struggling with her work. She's unable to get through the story, and then midway through she begins to tell her partner what she's working on which is the story and suddenly we enter this film within a film and it also takes place on the same island features mia wasakowska as a young woman also a filmmaker attending a friend's wedding on the island and she's involved with another guest she's had a relationship with this person for many years and it tells this this story of of their three days on the island as they kind of rekindle their romance and split and go their separate ways. And then the film returns us to the Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth characters, but at a different point in time, much later.
2: The the reason they're on the island is that it's a shared writing residency, right?
0: right? So there are several other filmmakers sort of milling about. Yeah. Too.
2: And they are Bergman fans, the two characters. And they are kind of Bergman stands a little bit, you know. They, they really love the films, and they're taking the opportunity to luxuriate or marinate in the setting. But it is a kind of working holiday. And I thought that, as someone who's very familiar with and and fond of Mia hansen Love, I'm very grateful to her because. When I wrote my book on Showgirls, I, I, I was grateful to her for showing me the script of Eden in advance where the characters argue about Showgirls, which ended up being my introduction. And because Mia is a showgirl super fan, to some extent, she can do no wrong in my mind. <laughs> but, you know, I'm very fond of her. And part of what I'm fond of is that um, her movies don't feel effortless. She is, to me, an example of a filmmaker who's extremely smart, but the smartness is sometimes a bit of a struggle to put on screen. It's not not because of a lack of talent or craft. She has those things in spades. I think she has those things more than people give her credit for. But, you know, her characters are often kind of fraught in that way. They're not sure that they've come into their own yet, whatever their age, right? They're not sure they've come into their own. They're not sure that they've mastered their instrument so this feels to me and this is going to sound like a slam it's not it's meant as a very specific compliment this is like a movie that someone who is in a writing residency would write
0: i think i it's agree with that, it's yeah. like
2: trying to capture some inspiration from a place trying to generate something that's insightful trying to trying to pull something out from 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 her past and her experiences it's such a smart movie Mm-hmm. And I think the smartness of it has been undersold as it's been reviewed. It's tr- tr- tremendously intelligent.
1: I always get the sense from Mia Mia's work that there is this sense of ideas exceeding the language of film. And it's something I have a lot of sort of affinity for because I feel like writing can often feel like that. Like language feels so inadequate. And I think you can sort of see that grappling.
0: The structure is like, is... You know is beautiful i think i think that she she creates this narrative structure that that works you know everything is in place everything is in the right place it all kind of the flow the the pacing i think is really on point there's just i just feel at the end i was left with a beautiful summer's day like what i just watched sort of dissipated into the into the ether
2: she never insists right She actually has her own, we're talking about Franco and Haneke, she has her own gimmick, which is her movies always reset. You wait for the hole to be punched in the middle of the movie. The character is going to disappear. The time is going to pass. The person is going to die. We've lost time. In this movie, it's the resetting into a new narrative, which may actually just be an old narrative, and it's it's a very veiled confession that she's writing, which is why the way Tim Roth is listening to her story sometimes, he's very funny. He's like, "Uh uh-huh you know because this is it seems like she's trying to say something about maybe herself and her past and her own past relationship that she hasn't told him yet or that he's keenly aware of and isn't so happy to see becoming the raw material of the movie that she's that 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 that, that she's working on so she has her gimmicks too but i thought that this one by the end i can't think of another movie of hers that is quite so heady and hall of mirrors ish and Really, the movie is not the movie is not Bergman-esque at all.
0: In no way. Hmm. Did I... In no way. N- no. Hmm.
2: It's haunted by him, but it treats him as what the island treats him as, which is as an institution and a theme park.
0: Yeah, he's like a character at... in a museum
2: yeah who's there yeah. to appreciate and she she can't help herself she like does the shot of the beds from scenes a marriage so Vadim Rizov tweeted and it was a great tweet he was like the funniest thing I've seen in a movie this year is Vicky getting into the bed from scenes from a marriage but her character knows it and can't stop laughing yeah yeah. because they're at one point staying in the room where he filmed the movie and so it's not just the movie thinks it's funny the characters think it's wait funny. is
1: Bergman Island like is this a real thing or yeah. did Mia yeah, yeah. come up with this
3: No, it's like Jurassic Park. You mean you you mean the residency itself? You mean is the residency
2: real? Yeah. Can I get? I believe
3: it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) You just have to be. You have to Jose. You have to be Mia Hansen Love, to go. I'll I'll work on it. Work on it.
1: Wow, that's. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Okay, I wasn't sure if this was a, a an invention in the yeah, film. There's a
0: Berg, They go on a Bergman safari at one point, and a tour yeah. guide takes them all over the island and is like,
2: "There's the tree from Persona." Yeah, where well, they've used D, they've used DNA to clone the movies. It's like ju- 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 Jurassic Park. Nice. Yeah.
0: Nature finds a way.
3: Uh, actually, I'm just wondering if either of you could could comment really quickly on the performance of Vicky Creeps because she's such an interesting actor, and I don't know whether or not she's someone who's really destined for some sort of like bigger international stardom. But she's such a, I find her to be one of the most fascinating actors I've seen emerge in the last decade.
0: I mean, I'm sure Adam has some has some thoughts here, especially given his interest in.
2: Oh yeah, no. When when we showed Phantom Thread at Metrograph, I did a fun interview with Vicky because I interviewed her for the pta book i could not have been more charmed and just moved by someone talking about their own process but that's because i care about that character very deeply you know long after i've forgotten spencer and some of these other films alma's gonna live in my heart from from phantom thread i love that performance in your soul alma's gonna live in your in your alma yeah yeah (laughs) yeah, right you know she's in two movies this year about beaches there's like the beach that makes you grow old and the beach that makes you grow sad uh and um (laughs) In the Shyamalan movie, she seemed a little, a little challenged, the way any actor would be by his particular sense of dramaturgy. Uh, here, I think she's very good. You know, I think I, 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 I think she's good, and I think that Roth is a very generous partner to her mm. as an actor in in, in this film because he cedes the film to her, right?
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's a great co-star, I would say. Let's give him props for
2: being a great co-star,
3: and he doesn't really know. get to be a co-star much in uh, Sundance. So you know.
2: no, I think he's I think he's you a very know. great actor. I hope he just starts mm-hmm. working with some different director all the time. I really want to I really I want Jose to talk about Earwig, because that was my favorite thing I saw.
3: I I, I mean, for me, the uh, I'll just kind of quickly say that that the most interesting thing about Earwig was is the greater context in which I saw it at the festival because I saw at least two first features by um, by directors that are horror films that have extremely interesting premises and are extremely exquisite in how they are photographed and with regards to sound. And I just thought it was interesting that I saw so many horror films, what I would call horror films, that are really happy to uh, sit in a place of total bafflement. Because I know that Adam and I are, are both uh, fans of, of the horror genre, even though there may not be that many great films in the horror canon. And I think that one of the things that makes so many horror movies fail is, uh, and it, this applies very much to our discussion of Sundown, is the idea that, you know, eventually you have to deal with these ambiguities that hover in the air. And when you show the monster or explain what's happening, you fall into this, this trap of uh, silliness. Earwig is certainly the most baffling film that I, I mean, at least that I felt very engaged with that Tiff this year. It's, as I said, exquisitely photographed, the sound. I mean, she is very much a director, I think, who really prefers to deal with sound over dialogue. I think she really prefers to deal with setting over milieu, if that makes any sense. You know, there's such a strong sense of atmospherics. I don't know that this film grabbed me the way that Evolution did. I hesitate to try to synopsize it. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be curious if you could do that, Adam.
2: I watched this this horror movie about the strangeness of caregiving while spoon feeding a, a seven month old baby <laughs> at six in the morning because I watched it on the digital cinema in the dark and in the quiet. The main plot action of this film is a man is constantly refilling and 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 ministering these frozen teeth to a ten year old girl. And so while I'm, uh, spooning baby food into my kid Avery's mouth I was like hey this is like us um but it's a movie that parallels these caregiving narratives because halfway through the dramatic world opens up the 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 dad who's not her dad goes out for a night on the town there's an injury to a woman at a bar that is quite shocking uh, Mm. once again showing a great almost in use of, of violence at which point a dual caregiving narrative props up because this woman is badly injured but not killed then there's a man who was also kind of taking care and trying to recuperate and convalesce her. And then these two narratives are literally meeting on a train, you know. And uh, I have a friend, a very smart friend of mine, who watched it and she texted me and she sort of said, this is like very Zulowski by the end who is not a model that a lot of filmmakers emulate now, because I don't think people have the chops or the craziness to copy Zulowski. You can copy Hanukkah, but like copying Zulowski is a lot. Right. And I thought that a high compliment I'd pay to Earwig is that it gets at that same irrational, poetic
1: hmm.
2: craziness that you get in some good 70s Zulowski films. I mean, a lot of people have invoked the David Lynch of Eraserhead because of how much it makes parenting or, or childcare kind of grotesque.
3: Well, then also, also the the inserts. I mean, just the attention paid yeah. to looking at objects is very much like Cronenberg, very much like Lynch, you
2: know. I'm sure you, mm-hmm. as someone who has written as beautifully as anybody ever has on Don't Look Now, and when you wrote about that for Scope, you must have noticed the girl in red dress in Pawn and your yeah. you
3: check
2: mark and you go, <laughs> well, I love that movie too. Yeah, But uh, I thought that this was one of the only movies I saw, Tiff. Even though I watched it at home, it held my full attention and it muted the voice in my head while I was watching it.
0: While feeding your
2: seven-month-old too. Not for the whole time, for the first 10 minutes of the movie. But the the voice in my head was muted during Earwig. And Mm. uh, that's not a small feat.
1: That's an amazing compliment right now to give any movie, so yeah.
3: Yeah, well, another compliment I I think I'd like to give it as well is that I wasn't thinking so much of Zulawski only because I don't think that her filmmaking invites the kind of wildness that Zulawski's films do. But I do think that it is a film that it's embrace of um, the grotesque as a way of getting at something very subconscious and vulnerable. To me, actually, there are moments in it where I thought this is someone who really understands aspects of Buñuel's cinema that yeah. very mm-hmm. few uh, filmmakers do. Aspe- I mean, especially the, the very, very end, the very last scene, which I will not describe because it's really worth arriving at. Best, best ending of the festival. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I I'll, I'll agree with that yeah
0: well i think that's a we'll end on that too
1: and totally sold me yeah
0: best transition of the podcast right into the ending
1: <laughs> the best ending
0: <laughs> well thank you guys this was great yeah thanks everybody.
2: thank you guys for having
1: me yeah what a pleasure and we'll have you guys back on to talk more movies many many more movies await this fall
2: <laughs> yeah let's let's let, let's
3: hope and we might even see them in cinemas
1: And look forward to writing by Jose, of course, next week and Adam also in the near future in the Film Comment letter.
0: The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.